0: Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I'm excited for you guys to get into today's episode. Today, I'm chatting with Sean Dealey, who, if you're not familiar with him, he is a Canadian-born recording, mixing, mastering, front of house engineer, producer, educator, and drummer. Sean works at Sweetwater Studios, which is associated with Sweetwater Sound. They've got an amazing studio, and in this interview, we get into all of the cool stuff that they're working on with that space. They have done a lot of work on the studio recently, and it's pretty cool stuff. So I'm really looking forward for you to learning a little bit about that. And we also get into Sean's background. Sean has a very diverse background and he really embraces that diversity in both the skills that he's got, the jobs that he does, the types of artists that he works with. And we definitely get into that topic of having diversity versus whether you should niche down and all that kind of stuff and what that might look like for you. If you're in a position where you're thinking like, should I go all in in one area of my life or should I spread it out and just try to get my feet wet in a whole bunch of stuff and see what sticks. We get into a really interesting conversation about that. So I definitely think you're going to learn a lot about that. And we also get into some really great conversation all about establishing the vision for your projects and how to actually execute that and what that looks like. And if you're in specific genres, maybe that's something you also need to consider is that there's a sound of that genre. So how do you actually execute that to make that happen? So this is a really fascinating interview. I'm I'm looking forward to you jumping in. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Sean Dealey, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix Podcast. What's going on, man?
1: Oh, yeah. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite.
0: Of course. For people who might, who might not be familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of your background on who you are, what you do, and how you got into all the awesome stuff you're working on these days?
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, currently, I am a chief engineer at Sweetwater Studios in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, we're uh, part of the campus of Sweetwater Sound, uh, the online music retailer. So, uh. Unbeknownst to most folks, we have a commercial studio here that functions uh, three rooms, a large tracking space, two mix rooms, stereo, and Atmos. And so uh, I've been here for the last five years working on various projects. Um, and uh, that that's sort of uh, really what my day job is here, is uh, running the studio, making records, mixing records. And so um, that's been pretty... Uh, Pretty awesome. Uh, where I come from, my background, uh, originally from Winnipeg, so Canadian. It's sort of transplanted into the States. Uh, I spent a bunch of years touring on the road as a front of house engineer and a technician, which uh, allowed me to run independent recording studios. So back in Winnipeg, there's uh, uh, probably three different commercial studios that I owned and operated in different capacities, made records with different folks, and uh, Fans like the Weaker Than's, uh, Doc Walker, Propagandy, Ken Mode, uh, a bunch of different independent artists up in in Canada. Um, probably about a dozen dozen or so years ago, I started working with the Counting Crows, and uh, in different capacities. But started as their drum tech, and then co-produced a record, and then mixed front of house uh, for them for a number of years. And so traveled around with them, made a couple records. Mixed a ton of shows uh, and did that until I got off the road and ended up in Fort Wayne in 2017. So I've been here for a few years. Uh, We were talking a little bit, uh, the studios have sort of changed uh, a lot in the last year. So I installed a new tracking console in Studio A, Rupert Neve Designs 5088. Uh, And we were uh, fully on board with uh, the Atmos world, and so we have two separate Atmos mix studios a pmc room and a focal room and uh really getting into recording for atmos and mixing atmos records so a mix of new projects and pre-existing projects that are getting mixed in atmos so some of the most recent stuff uh, i did animals as leaders record uh parisia the most recent release of theirs in atmos and uh uh, a bunch of other stuff that's sort of in the works, some label stuff, and uh, we've been tracking a bunch of things, developing some artists, and uh, we talked a little bit about this, but uh, we have this really cool recording workshop uh, series going on. So I just had Kenny Wayne Shepard in here on the weekend. We did a session, tracked a song off of his uh, first record. He's re-recording some of those tracks for a re-release, and so lots of different stuff going on here, but uh, yeah, that's kind of what keeps me busy. Uh morning. Tonight we're doing audio related stuff, talking about gear, making music. So, yeah, it's uh it's it's pretty fun here in Fort Wayne.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a good gig, man. <laughs> That's awesome, man. That's very cool. So, how did you get into mixing in the first place? Like or, or into engineering? Like what 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 got you into it to begin with?
1: So, uh there's a little bit of lineage in my family. Uh my dad owns a road case company. Okay. And so, kind of around the music industry growing up, uh my middle name is Jason after Jason Sound in Toronto. It was an audio company that used to do like Brian Adams tours and stuff. So oh. I was actually named after an audio company to some degree. So, <laughs> so um, you had
0: to be in the industry. Yeah, I
1: was kind of screwed into it from the beginning. But uh, <laughs> that sort of uh, set set the table. And then in high school, we had a music production class that uh, – sort of really opened my eyes to that i was sort of playing in bands through junior high like punk rock bands and things like that and then we got into high school and there's this music production thing where there was like a a classroom full of computers and interfaces and the the teacher had this sort of more advanced rig with some motu interfaces and some preamps and stuff and uh just sort of that was like yeah okay cool this is what i want to be doing at the same time started kind of dabbling in live sound i was playing in bands trying to you know get a handle on that stuff, but uh, for the most part, the studio thing is where I just like, this is what I want to do, and started buying gear, you know, got like a four-channel interface and kind of mixed some stuff through some, you know, like a Behringer mixer. I had at home, and then all of a sudden, I was buying interfaces, buying consoles, and my home studio, by the time, I I don't know, I was like 19 in my parents' basement, we had like a 32-channel uh, Yamaha PM2000, HD 24 a small Pro Tools rig, and so, Ended up, uh, you know, diving in with both feet and sort of, you know, figuring out that that's kind of really what I wanted to do. Being in a market like Winnipeg, it was sort of, I had to kind of do it myself because there wasn't a lot of opportunities of like large format studios and things like that. So uh, a lot of a lot of acquisitions of gear, trying to find stuff that I like to use, and that that sort of uh, rolled out the recording side of things. Around the same time I got out of high school, I hit the road uh, drum checking, working with uh, the first band I worked with was Billy Talent. Cool. So, their first tour effectively I was on and uh, kind of figured out that I could make some money doing some stuff that I, you know, I love being around music, playing in my own band wasn't really yielding much income, so uh was making a bit of money on the road and that sort of started the uh, buying gear with the money I made on the road so I could have a studio at home and that was uh well, a vicious cycle for many years. Yeah, uh, I was going
0: to say that's the dangerous cycle there.
1: <laughs> the gear acquisition syndrome was uh, quite Quite rampant for many years, so. Uh, but that kind of, you know, was how I got into it, and then how I sustained it for a bunch of years. And and pretty much, uh, I guess 2006 was the first commercial facility I opened up in Winnipeg, and it was uh, me and a business partner who was a best friend, and kind of got our stuff together and 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 opened up a, a little studio. And so, yeah, it's been uh, it's been fun. It's been about you know 20 years of working in the industry now, and you know every day is. Uh pretty awesome, pretty grateful to be part of music like this. So
0: Yeah, I love that. And I love that you did it out of Winnipeg too, because for people who might not know Winnipeg, like it's it's not a big city by any means, and nor does it have a, a big music scene either. You know, there's a pretty small but mighty group of people that play music out there. Yeah. Resilient. Yeah, but to, to start a studio there, you know, is definitely a challenging endeavor. And uh to have been able to do it as long as you did and to, to get to work on all the projects that you worked on is is a pretty big accomplishment in itself.
1: Yeah. No, and I mean that's that's always a learning thing too, is like getting into business when you're kind of working in the arts and trying to figure out like how to be creative and how to be mindful of money and things like that. Like, you know, uh I had some falling outs with, you know, business partners, friends, things like that, you know, trying to figure out how to make, uh, make things work. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, the first, that, that first studio space we made a record with the weaker thans, which is uh, a fairly, you know, fairly important band in the independent music scene in Canada and and even in North America, they were, they were sort of, uh, indie darlings back in the two thousands. And, you know, we had lost Lobos in our little space. They were out on tour one day and popped in and, made a couple of records this band Ken Mode who uh continued to put out records and work with different producers and stuff so that first like couple of years in that space was uh was pretty neat some of the stuff on top of like the local bands we were working with and things like that so that's awesome
0: well, I know that obviously you uh, you had mentioned that you have the studio and then you start, you eventually started teching and and uh, that got you on the road and working with a lot of different bands. Um, and that was one of the things that really stood out to me when I was doing my research on you was that it seems like you have a lot of diversity in the jobs that you've done in the audio industry. You know, you, you've worked in the studio, you've done live sound, you've done teching, uh, you're now affiliated with Sweetwater. You know, you got all this stuff going on. So I'm curious to know, like, you know, how did you get into, like, all of these different areas. It was just like one thing, just kind of. It was just coincidence that like somebody needed to like help with the drum tacking side of things, and you got into it that way. Or was it like, you know, were were you seeking out to do that? So
1: one of the the one of the earliest jobs I had, I, I taught drums for a few months at a local music store, and that didn't really pan out. Uh, at that time, I wasn't so good with young kids that were struggling with learning how to play drums. But uh, I got connected with a company called Canadian Backline. It was a backline rental company in Winnipeg. And so I was about 16, and I started working with them. And so that was sort of like some live production stuff I was doing. And so that was, you know, we would rent drum kits, guitar amps, bass amps. Uh, We had a shop full of gear, and we'd prep all that, go out to shows. And so early on, I got a really good handle on, like, you know, tuning drums, figuring out, like, what amps make what sounds, like, what kind of keyboards are cool, and, and, and getting an an ability to interact with, like, touring musicians. Uh, so that was kind of a, a pretty cool way to learn a lot of a lot of that stuff. And from there, uh met some folks and literally was graduating high school. A guy came into my dad's shop. I was hanging out one day, and he's like, well, yeah, we're going to Europe, and uh, I need a drum tech. And I'm like, well, hey, let's do this. And so that was <laughs> Billy Talent's tour manager. And so we uh, we hit the road. That was – I was 18. It was September uh, the, after I had graduated, so – sort of dove into that and and that went from me being the drum tech to them being like hey we fired the guitar tech can you be the guitar tech too and so then I was a guitar tech and the drum tech and you know learned a lot of stuff but i've always kind of been on the technical side of things really interested in like you know all of the tech components of it and so it it was an easy thing for me to grasp and you know as i went along through different gigs in the industry i worked with like avril levine all american rejects some stuff with santana ended up with the goo goo dolls and then the counting crows i started as a drum and keyboard tech and the reason it worked out for me with those guys is because i grew up around a hammond b3 we had one in our house that my dad owned so um it was you know one of those things where i could open the back of that and figure out what was going on and it's a pretty daunting task task to most people so um, was pretty, you know, adept at learning that stuff. And that was always something that I was really uh, open to, was working with all these people, knowing that, you know, I was pretty young at the time and a lot of these people had a ton of experience. So trying to just, like, suck up a lot of a lot of information for as many people as possible. And that really kind of helped out on uh, my first tour. I got a chance to mix Front of House for a couple bands. I ended up mi- mixing uh, Death From Above, was playing on some of the shows, and that, the Toronto band. And I ended up mixing a couple of club shows with those guys and getting my feet wet in that. Once I started touring with Avril Lavigne, we ended up having a bunch of engineers that were like, you know, seriously talented dudes in the industry. And so, um, I kind of would set up the drums and go hang out in front of house and be like, okay, what's all this about? And, uh, one of the opening acts was this guy, Butch Walker, pretty famous producer. And, uh, his front of house guy was also his studio guy at the time and, and a really, really good engineer, Paul Hager. And um, so Paul would do, like, mixing sessions on our off days and go into studios in Nashville or whatever city we're in and track some stuff. And he had this sort of, like, pretty uh, esoteric pile of gear for an opening act, lots of Distressors and Fatsos and H3000s and stuff in his, in his arsenal of, of gear. So kind of picked up a lot of stuff from the guys and, and and Paul is a mentor of mine for years and kind of lifted a lot of stuff from him. But um, that gave me the opportunity to kind of come home and be like, Hey, I'm back in Winnipeg where things don't really change. And I got all these sort of new techniques and things to try with different people and, you know, hearing about new gear and stuff like that. So yeah, it's been that, that kind of really tied, you know, the, the live and the studio stuff together because I was kind of going out and see what's going on on the road you know and also the financial side of that too making enough money to come back and you know the studio business is quite a grind so like you know it offset a little bit of the expense of like having a space and buying gear and you know not getting paid by clients and all that sort of fun stuff but uh it was uh, a really great experience to be around those people and sort of like pick off as much and and i think to go back to your question of like you know, having a diverse background, I I really like being able to have a really good handle on every kind of component of what's going on. So I know every kind of, I know all of the pieces of the puzzle and I can go in and and fix the problems and, and deal with that stuff when I'm in a session. And that, that I think really kind of helps make things go smooth.
0: Totally. Well, it makes sense that you, you got the opportunities that you did because you had that diverse background and you already knew all that equipment and you were prepared for it. So, you know, when, when the, Opportunity came up, then you could capitalize on it and, you know, make your make yourself known and and prove your worth there, right? So that, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm curious to know, like, do you think that it's important for up-and-coming engineers to have a lot of diversity in the services that they offer as well?
1: Well, I, I think there's a there's I don't know, there's different sort of factors of the industry. You know, there's a lot of people I see that are like younger people in the industry that are like mixing engineers and all they do is mix, right? And Uh, To me, the tracking component of a project, like I I really enjoy recording and being in the studio and the engineering side of it because what I can do there is make my job as a mixer a lot easier. And so um, every step of the process, I think, sort of uh, helps the next step get easier or have a better result from that. And so uh, I've always felt like it's nice to kind of be able to do the whole thing and not just focus on one thing. At the same time, like, you know, people like when we had Michael Brower here in the studio doing a masterclass a couple months ago. And it's like, Michael just mixes. You know, he hasn't tracked a record probably since the maybe 70s, early 80s. And, you know, his focus is really on mixing. All of his energy goes into that. So um, I think that's cool. And I think that that's uh, really great to have that kind of focus on something. But at the same time, I think I would get bored if I was just mixing. All the time, and like I like setting up a session and getting sounds and you know, you know, looking for new tones and kind of coming up with things that fit songs properly. So, that whole component of it, I think, is a really cool, expressive part of the creative process. And when you're kind of like you know, pigeonhole into like, why only do mixing? I'm only a mastering guy, and like, I totally respect people that do an amazing job at one thing, and like, that's awesome, but I also. Uh, like to kind of take on a lot of things, and I I love having the diversity of that. I don't, I I don't think I would have as much fun doing this if I was doing exactly the same thing every day.
0: For sure, yeah. I mean, there's some people that really lean into the whole jack of all trades, master of none kind of approach, you know. And then there's the people who really want to niche down. And uh, and I don't say that as like a, as an insult, like the no. na- master of none. It's like the, there are people that just really want to diversify their skills and be so busy with a whole lot of things where, you know, they maybe don't have the full attention to just be all in on mixing or, you know, mastering or whatever. Um, but if that's what gives you satisfaction, then great. You know, like there's no, there's no harm done, right? It's like, yeah. you know, enjoy your life and enjoy the work that you do. Um, and also I think it kind of ties to what you were talking about earlier about how in many ways the the studio market can be a tough tough game. So you kind of have to be willing to take on other projects sometimes to sustain it when you're getting started. And, um, obviously if you're someone who is super successful and you're in that Michael Brower position where like, you've got that history of amazing records under your belt, like then you can start to niche down and be more selective of all the projects and even the tasks that you want to do as well. Right.
1: Yeah. And that, you know, having, and that's another workflow thing too. Like he's got some amazing assistants that help him get his work, you know, prepped and things like that. And, um, You know, even talking about, you know, even the mixing process to me is one of those things that for years I've been working on trying to get a template together for my mix. And every time I do it, I'm like, man, I don't know if that's what I need for this project. And I kind of like go away from it. And, you know, those things that actually make the process easier, uh, I've actually had more of a tricky time sort of nailing that stuff down where the consistent repeatability I'm kind of more excited about like. Trying something new more often and and you know experimenting with what that project you know needs and and calls for, so
0: yeah totally I mean theres something to be said for obviously setting yourself up for efficiency and and you know having your templates and everything there um you know with a busy schedule, obviously those kind of things are really advantageous to have, and you know they, they do help you get up and running quicker, but but I also see your point too of like sometimes you want to be trying those new things and that's that's part of the process that you really enjoy and as long as you have that luxury of the time or you know the tools to to do so then you can you can learn a lot through that process too and and maybe that'll just help make the next album you do go faster because you now know those tools better and you know you're a little more informed in that in that stuff right
1: yeah and that's you know realistically the one thing I kind of picked up from from talking with Michael is like years that he had the analog studio with all the gear and, and now that he's in the box, effectively he has everything that he likes to use at his fingertips and it's all there and it's all kind of patched in. And that, that was kind of what inspired me to kind of get back into trying to get a template going because that's always the crux of my work when I'm working. I'm like, I get it going and I like use some, some pieces some plug in some gear. And then all of a sudden I'm at a point where I'm like, Oh, I forgot that that cool thing I did on that other thing would be applicable here. And so pulling some of that stuff in, but that's the, the, template thing was the light bulb went off and I was like, man, everything I find that sounds cool should go into this thing. And when I kind of <laughs> get to a point, it's all there and accessible. So um, that is, it's on my to-do list at the moment. We've been, I've been working through some of that. So.
0: Absolutely. And you know, you could take it even further than just a template. Like you can, you know, if you're using Pro Tools, you can make like the, the track, uh, track presets and stuff like that as well. So when you find that cool chain, you can save those and, you know then that's that's something that you can easily recall as well right
1: yeah and that yeah moving into like making my own presets and or at least starting presets I've, that's been something i've been going through and every plugin that i use repeatedly and and building those track presets and stuff that's a that's been a big time saver so that that is a cool cool workflow thing
0: for sure, I'm curious to know about this template making process for you and and how you how you've approached it. Like, are you just kind of doing it like you dedicate some time and you're just like, okay, cool. Now I'll think about what I need in my template, or are you like keeping any sort of notes of what you should be adding like as you work on projects, or you know what's what's that look like for you?
1: I've got a couple of mixes going on right now where I have more stuff than I need in them, and so that's kind of where I'm compiling, trying to figure out the components of what you know is going to yield me the results that I look for, and that was you know, taking other people's ideas and then applying them to what I'm trying to do. And then also knowing what I like and how I go about it has been, you know, that's been the thing that I've been navigating is like, you hear someone go like, yeah, this is the coolest blah, blah, blah. And you like load it up and you're like, that doesn't do what I'm thinking I needed to do. <laughs> and so, you know, the trial and error of that, and that that's a tricky thing to do is to like dedicate the time to figuring out that sort of stuff too. I mean, that's, you know, the the 10,000 hour thing of of committing so much time to the you know the practice of of engineering and mixing and stuff like that i mean i'm sure i've passed that uh, many years ago but it's always that like am i actually working right now to be productive or am i working to be creative am i trying to figure this stuff out how do i get how do i level up to a point where my work becomes better for the client and for the project and stuff like that and that's something that i'm you know trying to be aware of and trying to take some time to like you know this might take me longer but i think it's going to be better for my process and hopefully for the project too and so mm-hmm. um yeah no it's been it's been fun lately we've been messing with a lot of new plugins and a lot of different stuff so
0: yeah, I love that. And I, I think it's, you know, I think that's one area where things like templates really do help as far as like helping with your creativity, because, you know, they can eliminate so many of those like boring mechanical tasks that, you know, like we all start our mixes with this giant template uh, or a giant checklist of things that we need to add to our sessions to make just to get started, you know, and that could kill so much time, so much momentum. And, you know, especially if like, if you're the type of person who's like hitting play all the time as you're setting up and like you're just hearing the song a million times and you've you've already lost all your objectivity with it so like having your templates and everything up and running just allows you to get up and running super quick and just keep that creativity going and you know be in, be ready to just jump in and have that momentum
1: yeah and that's something that like lately like you know coming from the live world like having a console and sort of like specific channel strips that kind of live for certain things I usually treat my Pro Tools mix templates and sessions as like a console setup and the routing. And so I'm doing a lot of the same stuff, but that's sort of, you know, I've always kind of had like a surgical EQ and then sort of some kind of console EQ, and I'll just drop it on all the channels and sort of, you know, if I use it, I use it. If I don't use it, it's not a big deal. Um, It's not like, you know, we're, we're struggling for computing power these days. And, you know, then I can add some more flavor things to each thing as I go. And that's sort of been, you know, when I'm pulling things up, I have the components that I need to, to sort of shape the sounds, you know, already kind of placed. And I try and do that before I get into the pressing play and fixing things and balancing stuff and have that sort of like there so I can grab some stuff and do some broad strokes or some fixing and stuff like that before I get too deep. And that that's normally, I don't know, um, my mixing process is usually get into it for a good number of hours and then I just print a and mix and, and take it home and, and listen on the car ride home and then come back the next day. That's normally my you know, rinse and repeat thing that's yields me the best results. The, the objectivity of being in that world of like, you know, focused, uh, engineering and, and trying to balance all that stuff and get it to really kind of hit. And then, you know, not knowing what's going on after your ears get a little tired. So I'm normally a, you know, a couple hours on a song and then I, I print a mix and, and drive home, listen to it in the car and then come back the next day and sort of apply all the things that I, I, had sort of maybe missed in the in the control room, and then usually end up sending that out to the client the next day. So that's that's kind of been my my pretty trusted process lately.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, it's definitely good to have that break sometimes, just so you can refresh and recalibrate your ears. Um, as far as like getting to that point where you, you you decide to take that break or where you bounce out the mix, is there a certain point where you know that you're done with that mix? At that point, or is that like 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 are you even done with the mix at that point or are you just at a point sometimes where it's just like I'm just frustrated right now I need to like walk away from this
1: not usually too frustrated these days which is better uh that's than good. it used to be <laughs> uh feel, usually feel pretty good that's kind of where I get like I feel like there's some energy in something I'll kind of walk away from it and I might as well mention too like the Atmos mixing stuff that I've been I've been doing a lot of lately that's been an interesting adventure um because that's kind of uh uh, even more objective, we, we have a little bit of a process of checking mixes on Apple AirPod Maxes. And now that we have two rooms, we can bounce between them and sort of check them. But my assistant engineer uh, here at the studio is Jason Peets. He's been here for a couple years now, and he's like invaluable to my process. He sort of checks me as I go. He's known what I've done now. He was an intern back in 2020 with us, and then we hired him a couple years ago. and um, He kind of... <laughs> He can put me in my place pretty quick as far as like either it's good or something needs to change and and I trust his opinion on on what's going on. So uh a lot of that, you know, will bounce off each other and then, you know, especially with the Atmos mixes, spit it on MP four, listen on some AirPods, stream it and make sure things are not totally weird on, you know, some commercial devices. But um yeah, it's it's nice to have someone that, to work with that, you know, I really put some trust into and and he kind of Make sure that I'm doing the best work I can and vice versa with him. So
0: totally having that like objective third party ear is is crucial sometimes. Um, you know, I, I offer a coaching program where I, I help people out with all that and you know, they have access to me to like submit their mixes. And every time I chat with people before they get into that program, I'm like, you know, why do you want to join? And most of the people are in the same boat where they're just like, I don't know if this is sounding good sometimes. I'm just sitting in my own vacuum. Like I, you know, I don't know. Like, I'm spending so much time on these mixes and I just need someone to hear it. And like sometimes just having someone say like yeah, you nailed it. Is is all you need. And then other yes. times you need that that person who's just like, "Okay, like you're close, but I do this or that kind of thing," right? Like it, it makes a big difference to have that extra set of ears.
1: Yeah, hopefully some positive reinforcement or constructive criticism that, you know, will help you push yourself. And you know, there's there's been, you know, multiple times where, you know, sometimes mixing is one of those things where My approach to things doesn't work. You know, I've lost gigs to people that aren't happy with things, and and I try not to take that too personally. Um, But, you know, there's there's certain things that, you know, uh, depending on what the client's looking for, maybe I can't deliver it. And that's something, too, to kind of know when to to throw the towel in and let someone else take over. I mean, me trying to kill myself to do something that I can't do for a client that's wanting something specific is, you know, uh, it's not worth the energy to try and you know go through that emotional roller coaster of like hey they like it hey they hate it you know all that sort of stuff and so trying to have a good handle on that you know I try and find people that I work with try and find people to work with that I sort of gel with and we see eye to eye I do a lot of tracking of like live musicians real instruments and mixing of of that and that that's really where um, I like to sort of exist I'm not a big Sample guy or virtual instrument kind of fan. Uh, I'm getting better. There's there's a lot of stuff in the <laughs> in there that's a lot better than it's ever been. But I still really enjoy having musicians play together and, and capturing that energy and hopefully making a mix that kind of brings out the best of those those kind of performances. But that's not always the case depending on the style of music that's going on. So
0: totally, yeah. Do you end up? Do you ever have any like sort of conversations with artists ahead of time to get a sense of like? what they're going for as far as their sound. That way you don't end up like, you know, spending tons of time mixing something and then just send it to them and get rejected or, you know, you're far off base from what they're looking for. Do you ever have those kind of conversations?
1: Well, yeah. I I mean that that's, you know, I find it more difficult to take someone's mix uh, that maybe they didn't have enough direction while they were tracking it or making the, you know, the recordings and they expect something different out of what I'm going to do to it. Because for the most part, I would, like to maintain a lot of the elements and energy of of an original recording. I'm not the kind of person that would go in and load a whole different drum kit of samples and put that on. I would try and make whatever this recorded as good sounding as possible. So when I'm, you know, producing or engineering a record and going to mix it, I also uh, kind of enjoy that more because the creative vision of the final sound can be started when we record and we can have those conversations like, hey, like, what kind of music is this? What are you guys doing? What do you want to sound like? You know, we have a huge selection of amps and guitars and drums in the studio. So we can pick it from the beginning of, like, what stylistic sound we want to have. And to me, that really kind of carries through a project if there's something that's like, hey, we got a sound and we got we got all of those components at, like, the, the bass level of the project. When we're mixing it, it's just, like, kind of making those sound a bit better, making them fit together, and hopefully bringing the song out um if you know and and i find it with more inexperienced musicians will come in and be a little bit less open to the process of trusting you know maybe what i might bring to the table uh as far as like tones and and drums and and just sort of like understanding how those components fit together to yield a result stylistically that would be appropriate for a sort of you know for the band that would be you know if it's a punk rock band or if it's an americana band if it's someone that you know understanding the different sort of tones that need to be created to end up with a product that's going to be the right thing. So
0: yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I'm a hundred percent with you. I, I think that not enough people put emphasis on defining the end result before they start. And and I think that that's really important. Like you need to know what you want it to sound like in order to make the right decisions along the way. Like, yeah, you can, there are like go-to setups that you can use for miking a guitar amp or a drum kit or whatever. And like those things will work and they'll sound good, but like, wouldn't you rather it sound the absolute best it can for your vision and like be able to make those little like five to 10% adjustments that, that really drive it home and get it to like that final sound you ultimately want. Um, so I think it is really important for people to put emphasis on that very early so that yeah you can, like you, like you said, like if you have great recordings, it makes the editing process or mixing process easier. And, and you know, it's, it's, you're not trying to like polish a turd in the mixing stage, you know, (laughs) I'm not
1: good at that. Uh, as I've found, um, I would rather re-record something than make something not good sound good. Um, which is just, you know, uh then that's sort of where, you know, it comes into into play where we try and get people like even, you know, budgets on recordings like are non-existent in any capacity, but like independent artists and stuff like that, we try and do a lot, you know, for local bands and trying to get people in like just to to use our facility. Jason's tracking some band today that's like a bunch of dudes that work in the warehouse and He got all these sounds dialed in for him, and you know they're on their way. But also, they came to the table with a bunch of things that one of the dudes builds pedals, and so he's got all his own pedals, right? And so, trying to get people to you know see the vision. Like when I look at a band that's coming into the studio or a project, it's like I'm thinking about how this is going to sound. You know, hopefully they have other recorded music. I'm going to try and figure out how I can get to the that finish line the most effectively from the start. And so that's really you know, the thing that I kind of put into play as much as possible when I'm working on projects is like, let's get these sounds, let's get them great, let's get them, you know, you know, hopefully unique enough that it's not sort of like a standard practice thing, but like we've got some cool things that are interesting to hopefully take the project a little bit further, you know, sonically. And then when we get to the mixing stage, it's like the puzzle pieces are already cut. We just kind of got to put them together. So
0: Totally, yeah, I love that. Yeah, because like if you don't know ultimately what you want it to sound like in the end, how can you gauge whether you're actually taking, whether you're actually hitting yeah. that mark, you know?
1: Yeah, no, it's, and, and that, you know, understanding, you know, stylistically what's appropriate and, you know, understanding the styles of music you record too, like, um, you know, when you get into, like, subgenres of metal and 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 uh, stuff like that, like, there's specific guitar tones or specific drum sounds, there's, like, components to these recordings that sort of define a genre of music, right? So if you're trying to fall into that and you don't understand that, um, you're going to probably end up with something that feels, uh, you know, doesn't quite fit the bill and then also might be insincere to what, you know, stylistically we should be doing. So it's always kind of a delicate balance of that and hopefully finding artists that know what they want and and helping them find that vision and giving them a record that hopefully they're proud of and, and excited about. So.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about uh, as it relates to your diversity, obviously you've got a lot of uh, diverse jobs that you've done in your past, but you also have a lot of diversity in the styles of artists that you've worked with as well. Um, and you had mentioned earlier, like you worked with Counting Crows, Avril Lavigne, Goo, Goo Dolls, Santana, American Rejects, like there's a lot, of, a lot of diversity in there. So I'm curious to know, like how important is it to you to have that diversity in the styles of music that you work in as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I briefly touched on it, but like the thing that I like the most, especially in the studio, is like humans playing music. So I like having tracking sessions. I love, I love having music. Like that's like personally, I really like that Americana stuff, like Drive By Truckers and things like that. Like that's kind of what I like to listen to outside of the studio. Um, In in the studio, it's kind of a mix. Like the Counting Crows are, you know, sort of an Americana rock-pop band, and and they have a really interesting, diverse uh, instrumentation in a lot of their songs. So we go anywhere from, like, you know, electric guitars to mandolins, electric mandolins, banjos, acoustic guitars, 12-strings, mandolins, uh, B3, whirly, uh, got some synthesizer, had, like, an arp on one of the things, upright piano, grand piano, accordion. So all of this crazy, you know, all over the map instrumentation, but to kind of add those instruments in a in a way that, you know, yields the best res- result for the song. They're really good at that, three guitar players in the band. So, you know, that's really cool. Uh, I really like that ability to have a lot of different stuff, even on a record that, you know, the records I did with them, there was no two songs that had the same instrumentation. So it wasn't like, you know, a, a three-piece band where it's, you know, drums, bass, guitar all the time. It's like all these things, and the textures of that are really cool. So, you know, uh, and then finding other you know different bands like uh assistant engineered on a, the last propaganda record which was uh a really really amazing record that uh my former business partner produced and you know it was very uh a lot of you know really focused uh components to that and everything was the same on the record like guitar sounds and stuff like that but those guys are such great players and such great writers that nothing really sounded super the same through the whole record. It was all really kind of like, you know, it all worked for all the different things. And so um, it's one of those things that ability to find the right sound for the artist, I think is something that I do quite well and understand that. And that, you know, applies to a lot of different styles of music. And that's something I think that was one of my strong suits is to try and you know, make an artist feel comfortable and find something that works for them sonically and hopefully inspires them to perform better. So,
0: yeah, that's awesome. And I could definitely hear that, like listening to the County Crows records, like, yeah, you're right. Like every song has different instrumentation and you don't hear like the same sounds throughout the whole, tr- throughout the whole record. It's very different. And, you know, it, it really is serving the needs of the song rather than making like an album of the same sound.
1: Yeah, and, and and stylistically, you know, like when you get into heavier records and stuff like that, like obviously if you went from like different drum sounds and different guitar sounds, it would be super disjointed. You know, there's there's specific styles of music that need to have that continuity through a record, but, you know, when you get into the more, I don't know, song-based stuff, it's like you got to serve the song, right? It's like totally. if there's something that's going to work better for, you know, conveying the message of, of that song, then obviously that's the move, so...
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good distinction because I think that you're right, like certain genres of music, it's just that they, like that's the sound of that genre is like that uniformity or whatever it is, right? And and then you get into the, these more organic based genres, the singer songwriter stuff and all that where it's like, yeah, things are supposed to just be like all very different and like very like grassroots or whatever, you know? And because of that, like the people kind of expect that it's not going to sound the same. It, it it needs that kind of uh, diversity and everything.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, there was a session on the weekend we had with um, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. He was recutting a song off his first record, and originally there was a percussion track that was uh, a cardboard box with some drumsticks or like a hot rods and a mic stand, and that was what the drummer was playing. So we set up like a cardboard box, and we mic'd it up, and the dude was playing a cardboard box for the intro of the song, and I was like, I never would have been like, hey, let's get the cardboard box out and mic that up. But <laughs> that's what originally served that song. And, and even the Counting Crows had a song on the record they did just before I started working with them. And they were they were working out an arrangement in the studio. And the drummer was in there tapping on a book in the studio lounge. And he was kind of keeping the rhythm, like kind of a pitter-patter sort of like rhythm on, on the book. They ended up tracking that, and we ended up taking a book on tour, and I had a mic on a little book that he would sit in front of his drum kit and play along to. <laughs> so, like, normally we wouldn't make up a book, but, you know, that's what served the, that song, and we made that work. And so, you know, um, that kind of creativity I think is a cool thing to sort of, you know, not be afraid of experimenting. I think, like, obviously wasting time experimenting in the studio is, is a completely different era or uh, – completely different sort of experience but like if you're finding the sound you want with different items i think that's super cool i think the uh the going down the path of like hey let's waste a bunch of time experimenting in the studio uh that gets old pretty fast
0: for sure yeah there's definitely a time and place to experiment and if you're in like a creative headspace of like trying to write music and those creative those sounds inspire you then uh, yeah, I mean, run with it, right? But but you're you're not gonna be like, hey guys, let, let's let's stop recording the drums for like the next few hours and let's just like record random doors or whatever, you know, and see if we can make that sound cooler, you know?
1: Yeah, and I mean, that's you know, when you start getting into like the production side of things and and trying to take someone like take their vision and get it through to the other side, I think that's kind of where like I'm not a songwriter, so I'm not that kind of producer that gets into the songwriting component, but I'm very much like a sonic. You know, the sonic component of a song or the arrangement or instrumentation of it, that's kind of where my skills really shine. So that's kind of where I dive into a little bit more heavy handedly, finding the pieces of the puzzle that work the best for that. So
0: for sure. Yeah, I love that. I love hearing stories about like, Recording a book and stuff like that. <laughs> I think it was like the um, it, it was like that first Angels and Airwaves record that they that they made. Like they were recording like filing cabinets being slammed or like hammering anvils and stuff like that. And like they made yeah. loops into that. And I, I love that kind of stuff. It's such a creative take on it. But uh, yeah, it's it's it, that's that's a decision you make very early on in the process. You don't just start adding that after the fact.
1: Yeah, there was a thing that when I worked with Avril, we were uh, I had access to the Pro Tools sessions from the records because I was doing playback with her and so we had some of the stuff where kenny arnoff played and he had the trash can kit where it was like a whole drum kit made of trash cans and so love it <laughs> he'd obviously come to the studio with a regular drum kit but he'd bring that along to do sort of the loopy weird stuff and uh yeah i don't know it's it's cool to have some diversity but i i still you know like a well-recorded drum kit is sort of my favorite thing uh in you know this this whole adventure. I love drums and 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 recording them and making them sound great. So if we're gonna do a record without drums, I'm not super interested in that. <laughs> but
0: uh totally, I think it's hard enough to get great sounds with just like drums, bass, guitar, and vocals. You know, to add that extra layer of like how do how do we get the uh, the book sounding the absolute like most pristine yeah. it can. You know, that, that's a whole other what, level. What's
1: the best <laughs> compressor for that? So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love that what was it?
1: <laughs> uh yeah yeah I couldn't yeah I'm not sure live I used I used a clip on beta 98 and then a lot of EQ so <laughs> uh,
0: yeah it was fun That's awesome. Well speaking of live, I'd love to get your experience in the live sound and and um, specifically more like how it relates to or if it does have any crossover as far as skills go with the studio um, do you find that there is a crossover between them? Or, or either, in, either in the way you approach the the projects, or in your own workflow, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, so I, I don't really treat either one of them much differently. So um I work very quickly in the studio, and then I I guess would would have had a pretty extravagant setup on the live side of things by the end of it. Lots of outboard gear, old microphones, ribbon mics, like you know, esoteric DI's on stuff. But you know, realistically, the concert touring world these days. The speaker systems are so amazing and the systems techs that work with them do such a great job at getting venues to sound so good that you can effectively make a live show sound as good or better than a record. Um with the impact and the size of that, you know, like there's a lot of potential for like really high quality audio to be mixed. And so I kind of went down that path as best I could. Um when I was working with the Counting Crows, all the shows that I ever mixed were released as uh, downloads on livecannoncrows.com through a company called Nugs. So after the show, I'd take my board mix, I'd master it on the bus, upload it to the server, and sell it. So not only was I mixing live to the venue, but I was also conscious of this is going out to the fan base and and being downloaded, uh, which I feel like I did a really good job of, um, I don't know, some of the mixes are pretty awesome. And uh, we ended up doing a live record 2013 maybe something like that echoes of the outlaw road show and i ended up mixing a few songs on that record on my live console on a set of Genlex x in like a venue that i couldn't beat when i got back to the studio
0: so it wasn't like you were just taking like uh like a board feed from the live show and, and exporting that like you were mixing it a little bit after the show kind of no thing?
1: no. so like all the stuff that got uploaded to the live countycrows.com was all my board feed that oh, wow. was just it went through a uh I made like a mastering chain that it would hit when I got back to the bus and uh, just kind of bring the level up. But then there was a record that was a, you know, a, I think a 14 song record. And I took a bunch of multi-track recordings back to my studio, did a bunch of mixing, and I had two songs on there that I just like, I had sat down one day and kind of done some mixes for some some video shoots we had done. And I couldn't beat the mixes. Like I had all my outboard gear at that time and I was like doing a bunch of stuff and uh, my mixes that I did on my live console, I could not touch in the studio. So uh, that was kind of kind of cool that they made it, but that there's not, in the capacity that I worked where I had the ability to have a lot of control over what was going on on a day-to-day basis, I treated it almost like a studio session where I had, you know, specific mics, like multi-mic guitar amps, you know, overheads or coals. I had like a bunch of cool, like vibey things that really kind of made that band sound great because they were great players, because they had great songs, because they had great gear. I was able to use some cool pieces of audio stuff to kind of continue to enhance that. And so there's a lot of people, I think, um, there has been a lot of people in the audio world that, um, you know, I'm only here to turn it up sort of mentality. Uh, I see these days there's way more people that take way more care about live engineering and, you know, really bringing like, high level you know engineers and then really good equipment and like really taking the extra you know extra effort to make shows sound amazing and that's been really awesome to see that transition from like you know the 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 old venue sound guy who's not going to give you any more in your monitor to people that are like really really talented engineers making live shows sound amazing and so to me that that live component when i'm in the studio I work really efficiently and I'm like pretty quick at getting sounds and stuff like that. And so that kind of like comes back to the live mentality of like, you know, am I going to spend, you know, half hour on the kick drum? I'm going to, I'm going to pull up a kick drum and be like, does that sound like a kick drum? Does that sound like the (laughs) mic I put in there? Do I need to EQ it? Okay, cool. I'm going to go to the next mic and move on. And it's one of those things that I've, you know, done these things so many times in so many different capacities. When I pull up a microphone on a specific instrument, if it doesn't sound right, then I'll fix that problem. Otherwise, I know that that's kind of I've I've got all my ducks in a row to get those sounds happening. So when I when I get that you know flow going, I'm not going to go and hyper focus on something because I know intuitively that that's where I'm headed to and want to go. So yeah, I don't know. It's it's something that a lot of people draw a line in the sand on for live and studio. I feel like we should be more symbiotic, and and I think that it really. It helps each, you know, that those two skill sets combine to make a really kind of powerful audio engineer. So,
0: yeah, I love that. I, and I, I do see, you're right. Like, I do see a lot more artists these days traveling with sound people who have, you know, racks of, of studio gear. And I love it. It's, it's like most of the time, I feel like a lot of times the live sound engineers are people that wanted to get into the studio to begin with. And so it's like, you know, now they get to bring all the toys out with them and have fun with it. So, right, yeah.
1: Well, and that's, you know, and there's, there is. Um, there is some good money to be made mixing live sound too. Like as far as like a career and like consistency on, you know the 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 amount of money that you can make touring compared to the amount of money you make hustling gigs in the studio is like that's um that's something to consider too. Like that was something I found like the financial security of working with a band consistently allowed for me to have more flexibility in the studio side of things. Where you know if I wasn't touring, I don't know if I would have been able to be to feel as stable in the business sense of that studio world. So um, I think that that's another thing too, is like the touring component of the music industry is, is uh, a great way to, you know, travel, see a lot of stuff and make some great connections, but also have, you know, some financial stability. That's you know, go out for a couple of weeks of work and make some real money, and for sure be able to buy more gear, right? Yeah. So,
0: <laughs> well, and and one thing to probably clarify for people who haven't worked in lifestyle before is that you know it it isn't always the most stable job either, in the sense yeah. that like you know you might work with a band and they have a three month tour, and that's like three months of solid work, but after that three months is up, what do you do next, right? Like,
1: well, the, that's the flexibility that I kind of like about it is like it would be you know you go on tour for a bit and like okay so we're going out for 3 weeks and I'm back for a couple of weeks and go out for 6 weeks and I'm back for 2 months and that kind of balance gave me time to sort of set up work in the studio and gave me a kind of break between the things so but yeah there is really a lot of uh you know there's no health insurance there's no real like you know you're not on salary for the most part like salary might exist between you know the time you leave home and come come back from a tour so there's a lot of stuff between that but that's sort of like the you know the balance that I found was that you know touring and then also running a studio and and working on projects and stuff was was a good way to kind of balance out how I uh, how I survived in as a professional in the industry. So
0: yeah, that makes sense. And I, I'm in the same boat as you. Like I definitely had like the studio going while taking on tour gigs and you know like working other jobs whenever I needed to. Like you know you, you take whatever you can just to stay afloat and get the ball rolling enough that. You can either commit to one thing if that's what you want to do, or you just keep keep going with it with the all the diverse stuff and you know it just makes life a little bit more exciting sometimes too so I, i'm I'm with you on that. I'll have to say like that
1: sort of transition for me i was I was working here at Sweetwater for a couple of years doing some uh live sound and production work and it kind of transitioned at the end of twenty nineteen, i which'm very thankful for that I kind of moved back into uh the studio world full time but this has probably been the longest chunk of time now over the past 3 years that I've been fully committed to studio work on a daily basis so um quite enjoying it um I'm not not really missing the road which is which is uh uh fine uh at this time but uh it's kind of nice to finally get into a a real rhythm in the studio for because that always was sort of the thing I'd get you know get pretty settled and be like, okay, I got to go on the road for six weeks. And then I kind of forget the studio vibe. And then I'd be like, okay, road zone and come back. And so this has been nice to kind of really get my feet planted here at the studios and, you know, kind of establish
0: a consistent workflow. And it's been fun. For sure. So now that you're at Sweetwater, um, obviously it's affiliated with Sweetwater Sounds, the, the music store company. Um, So, you know, was the studio originally built kind of to be more of like a demo room, or was it meant to, like, what was the intention of the studio in the first place?
1: So, the company was actually started as a recording studio. So, in, in 1979, uh, Chuck Surak, the owner, the, he's, he's the chairman of the board, he, uh, is no longer the owner of the company, but uh, he started uh, Sweetwater Studios, effectively, in a VW bus that he traveled around and did remote recordings. And so, that was the beginning of Sweetwater. Uh, that progressed into him having a home studio and then kind of getting into some early samplers and synth- synthesizers and stuff. And and Kurzweil keyboards, when they first came out, he started developing some sample packs for those and in the capacity that they had back then. And that kind of got him on a national radar of Kurzweil and started being a dealer and started selling uh, components to uh, other musicians that were using the products. And that sort of started... Uh, in the mid-80s, from what I understand. And then I think we got a .dot .com. I think Sweetwater.com was registered in the early 90s, so they were pretty, pretty on it. So the studios have always been part of the lineage of Sweetwater Sound, the company. And so uh, each location, this, the Sweetwater's been in a few different locations in Fort Wayne, Indiana. They've all had a studio. So the building we're in now uh, opened for Sweetwater in 2008. There was a three room facility built, uh, designed by Russ Berger, built in this this space here, and is operated as a commercial facility since since opening. And so we are, uh, you know, a for profit, for hire commercial studio that also uh, we fit um, components of uh, content creation and educational components to our events that we host here um, around our paying customers and clients. So it's kind of an interesting thing. We are attached to the store, the sales force, the marketing, all of the headquarters are all in this building. We have a distribution center, uh, in the back of the, uh, property we're on here. And, um, you know, it's, it's a symbiotic part of the company now. Now we do do demos. We have people that come and check out stuff and we, You know, we want to cater to customers that do want to buy consoles or large speaker sets or learn about Atmos and things like that. So we make time for that. We have a great relationship with our sales force here. So, uh, you know, if you have a Sweetwater sales engineer, you know, we have those guys down here and have them kind of interact with us as best as we can. And so it's kind of an interesting thing because it's not quite a regular business model of a studio because we have the success of our retail Component of the company that is doing really well. The studio business is, you know, has been a struggle for a number of years, just, you know, uh, without having people paying a lot of money to come to studios, uh, not really having budgets from labels, us being in a small market. So uh, we found a way to kind of uh, do well uh, with educational stuff. Like we talked about some master classes. I host a recording workshop where I take people start to finish from recording a project over two days. uh, And we have like, you know, uh, a few of those a month and we're going to continue to do some of the educational stuff that we're able to trade the artists for studio time and we can get people in. And so, um, you know, trying to think a little bit outside the box of how we function as a business, but yeah, it's not, it's not just a showroom. It's a functioning studio. We're here, you know, some most times seven days a week, making, making music in multiple rooms, mixing, uh, and then when we're not doing that sort of stuff, trying to facilitate demos and, you know, different components of the other parts of the business.
0: I love that. That's great. Uh, I'd, I'd imagine that one of the advantages that of working there is that because you're affiliated with the retail side of things, you probably get the, the opportunity to audition a lot of new gear that's constantly coming out and that kind of thing. So I'm curious to know, um, you know, is that the case? And, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure it is. Um, but I'm also thinking that, like, if that is the case, it's probably going to be a little bit overwhelming to some degree too to have like so many options available to you at all times. So uh, I'm curious to know about uh, option paralysis as well and how you go about approaching that.
1: Yeah, well, so yeah, there is a lot of options, and we do see a lot of products. And most, you know, most manufacturers come into the building when they have new product releases, so we get to see them early. And there's some cool stuff like that. The studio is like really well stocked with a lot of outboard gear. We have a massive mic locker. There's tons of guitar amps and tons of drums. And over the years, have been kind of you know curated for different reasons. Sometimes we have stuff uh, for a specific manufacturer needs. So if we do like a demo for microphones, we may have all of those manufacturers' microphones here in the studio with us that we hold on to. So we may have you know like all of Mojave's microphones. We just did a thing with them last week. We lined them all up. They came in. People got to check out the microphones. And so then we hold on to those microphones and are able to use them for sessions. Uh the thing with having so many options is you find things that you like and you find things that you use that are pretty consistent. And that's sort of we've worked through, especially outboard gear and things like that. Like we rely heavily on our console to track with, but we have a couple few pieces of choice outboard that we like. And we sell and buy. We actually, you know, the studio has a PL we buy from Sweetwater when we want to purchase a product and Uh, manufacturers send us demos to try out and stuff like that. And it's a pretty good situation for us in the studio. We get get access to a lot of really cool gear and it's really fun. Um, That is kind of the one thing though, too, with all of the stuff, it's like, you don't want to get bogged down by that. So we try and keep things working, you know, like, okay, there's a lot of things here, but like, you (laughs) know, when we talked about specific stuff or specific styles of music, you know, we try and limit the options depending on what we're doing, but we do have access to a lot. I mean, the warehouse is attached to the company. If there is something specific we want, we can actually pull it from inventory uh, and get it into the studio. Normally, we try not to take anything unless it's already been demoed. But it's it is a pretty interesting situation to be in. If if there's something that's needed, it's you know we can get into our system here and, and get it over from the warehouse pretty quickly. So uh, that is a, a pretty. Pretty awesome thing. So that's a
0: pretty big perk.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's uh yeah, it's pretty cool. So yeah, if you want to come make records here, we have all this gear. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's like having a music store at your fingertips.
1: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) no, it's 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 pretty neat. But it's like it's it's you know, just like any studio, we try and curate the stuff we like to use, we try and make sure that everything's functioning and try not to have we don't need a million options. We just kind of try and have a selection of stuff that we like to use and you know, and and it kind of constantly changes and rotates, which is which is nice. So
0: makes sense. Yeah. You don't want to overwhelm yourself or, or bog yourself down with like just constantly being in a state of experimentation when you yeah. know that those things work for you and you know what mic's already gonna get the sound you want and all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
1: I try and do like at least one new thing every session. We try and like push ourselves to like not do the same thing over and over again. But yeah. I don't really try and reinvent the wheel every time just because some new piece of gear showed up. So
0: fair. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I, then on that note, I'd love to get your take on you know the the old saying of it's about the gear, it's about the ear, not the gear. You know, how do how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm fully on board with that. I would make a record anywhere. Right now, I'm making records where I have every conceivable choice available to me. Uh, I'm I'm totally open to more limitations, but at the same time, I think that you know personally, the most important gear to me is a pair of speakers so I can hear things. You know, and uh, Outside of that, uh, it's really about, you know, those choices you make. I mean, all of this is effectively audio opinions, so we sort of impose our audio opinions on different components of of the process and, and end up with hopefully something people like. But, yeah, I feel like it's definitely, um, definitely the ears, not the gear. And the better the gear gets, obviously, the easier it gets. That's something that, you know, when I'm teaching these classes, it's like we usually have quite talented musicians on the weekend. We had... Uh, Kenny's band in here with, uh, you know, uh, Chris Layton, who played with Stevie Ray Vaughan, as far as like blues drummers go, you're not going to get a better drummer for that style of music. So it's like, we're sitting there recording this stuff and, you know, everyone's like, Oh, it sounds so great. And, you know, these guys are so talented. And it's like the better they get, the easier the process becomes. And that's something that, you know, I think people struggle with at home is like when they're trying to make a recording and, and trying to get a performance and stuff like the, the, the whole process becomes so much more efficient when there's talent involved, and the frustration goes down, and, and all that stuff. But you know, rarely is it due to the gear that things are sounding good and you know becoming successful. So
0: yeah, the gear is not the thing that you know. If your mixes suck right now, it's it's most likely not to do with your gear. You got to work on the skills or get the right get the right musicians on the way in that kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: like a yeah. If you're gonna paint, you know, you need all the colors of the Paint to make a painting, but paint is not the painting. So you know you really need to kind of figure out how how to use those tools to get where you want to go. And if they're of limited quality or you know limited resources, it's like you know know what you have and know what works, and you know try not to screw that up. I think that's sort of the biggest thing. Is I do some pretty complex miking things with drums now that we're kind of dabbling in atmos, and it's like you know when people you know record drums with. You know three or four mics that's probably going to be the most effective way to get a good you know solid drum sound without a lot of problems but i had i think i had 26 mics on the kit with a whole bunch of <laughs> atmos ambient mics the other day and you know is, is it necessary no but is it going to give me some of the palette that i want when i get it into the spatial realm i hope so so you know doing some experimentation with that but uh not everybody's going to have the ability to put that many mics on a drum kit, nor should they, but...
0: Uh, for sure. But it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about, like, when you have that end end goal in mind, it allows you to make decisions that can help you get there. And so if you know what's going into Atmos, you can spend... You can have all those extra mics up because you know that you're probably going to use them or, or that you potentially... Ha- you you know where you might have a need for them.
1: Yeah, and th- and that's the experimentation, especially right now in this phase of, like game of like trying to figure out what's going to work and what's not it's like we're, we're putting up more and more kind of like ideas effectively and being like okay we're going to throw these up and see what they sound like and it's like we've thrown a few things in and we've been like that's useless we're not going to do that again and so kind of that's that's more of an experimentation as far as that technology and that process goes so uh which is a little bit different than you know just kind of putting up too many mics so Sure. Still a, I still like a lot of mics on a drum kit. It gives me, gives me all of the flavors, but, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, sometimes uh, that engineering side of us, uh, we just love playing with the toys. So sometimes when you have the, them available, you kind of want to experiment sometimes. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and, you know, if the
1: song is great, it'll work really well. And if the song's not that great, then you can make the drums sound really awesome. So, yeah. you know, it gives you, gives you both sides.
0: Totally, right on, man. I love it. Well, I don't want to take up much more of your time. If people want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can
1: find contact for me at Sean or sweetwaterstudios.com. So, uh, you can reach out to me, um, uh, on Instagram at Sean Dealey. So those are kind of the best spots to, uh, track me down, but yeah, looking, uh, always looking to work with people and, and we have a really great facility here and, you know, really trying to push, push into the Atmos realm from a recording standpoint. So if anybody wants to get into that that stuff. I would love to talk more with them.
0: That's awesome. Right on, man. Well, thank you again for being on. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. So that was my interview with Sean Dealey, and I can definitely relate to a lot of his story with my own personal journey of, you know, trying to start studios. And, you know, it it can be a hard grind sometimes to do that. So sometimes you do need that diversity in all of the different tasks you can do, you know, and I've definitely done the teching and the live sound side of things as well. And so I'm I related to his story quite a bit. And I think it's a really fascinating conversation and it's important because I know a lot of you are probably in a situation where you're trying to get into being a studio engineer full time. Maybe you're just starting to run your own home studio operation and sometimes that doesn't pay the bills right away. It can take a little bit of time to to get into that routine, right? So if that's the case... Look outward and try to figure out ways that you can diversify your skills so that you're still busy in the music industry, you're still networking with other people in the industry, and you're you're strengthening your skills, not just your studio skills, but you're strengthening all of your musical abilities so that you can take advantage of opportunities when they come your way. And I think that will be a really great way to, you know, get your feet wet in the industry, go all in. But if it does take some time to get your studio going, then at least you're still having fun doing the work you're doing. And I relate to Sean's perspective of sometimes that diversity just in itself is really fun. You don't want to get bored of doing the same thing all the time. So when you have the ability to do lots of different skills, it allows you to be maybe cherry pick certain jobs and ultimately create a life for yourself that is full of fun projects and that keeps you busy. So, um, yeah, I think it's a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed hearing Sean's perspective on all that. And I also really enjoyed learning more about the Sweetwater Studio. It definitely sounds like a sweet place no pun intended. And uh, the fact that, I mean, they have access to basically all of the gear they could ever possibly need in the retail store. I just think that's such a unique situation for a studio. And um, definitely as an engineer, that sounds like a lot of fun. So yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope that you did as well. If you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios. And whether you're a beginner who's just trying to figure out how to get into this world, or if you're more advanced, but you're not quite happy with the results you're getting, if you're frustrated with the results, or if you're trying to improve your speed and your confidence, That is all the stuff that I can help you out with. And I'd love to work with you to help you achieve your goals with your music and ultimately feel proud of the work that you're doing. So if you're interested in learning more, visit MasterYourMix.com. And on that website, you'll find a ton of great resources designed to help make that process easy for you. I've got courses, coaching, and even a book for you to check out too. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And inside of that book, I break down the process of mixing step-by-step so that you know exactly what to do as you're mixing. So again, if you're trying to get better sounding mixes, you're trying to optimize your process, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com and check out the Mixing Mindset book while you're there. All right, that is it for this episode. We've reached the end. Thank you so much for sticking around, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.